but there's a lot of founders that struggle with things like imposter syndrome, no matter what your age is. Yeah. It's the first time often you've ever done it. Otherwise you wouldn't be building something from nothing and doing something for the first time. And so whether it's age or background, there's nothing that just gives you every checkbox experience you need to be a founder and CEO of a hypergrowth startup. And so you got to remember that and acknowledge that. And so the best thing I found to like just remind people is you may not have all the answers and you may think that's because of your experience or your background, but remember you're doing something entirely new and innovative. Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Speaking of world-class companies, there are more incredible startups in the Kleiner portfolio than I've ever seen. When I was operating, I would have begged to be in some of these companies. If you're listening, and we don't do sponsorships on this show, so I figured I'd use this opportunity. If you're listening and you are inspired by the stories of my guests and you want to find the next incredible ride for you, reach out to me. Let's find an amazing job in the Kleiner portfolio. Now let's get to the episode. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Great to have you. I start these things all the same way. Should we comment on our setting here? I feel like we have okay, to. Okay, I'll, ba- I'll give the backstory, which is basically, Sean is the CEO of Stored, one of our portfolio companies. And I said, Sean, I want to have a podcast with you. I said, I can swing up to Atlanta from Miami and we could do it at night before I leave. Or we could wait till you come to San Francisco and you're like, I'm actually in Miami. And I was on my way. And I said, great, let's find some time. So anyway... Fast forward, long story short, Kelsey, who's my right-hand woman, was spending hours basically trying to figure out where are we going to record? Because you have these interviews, whatever, conference, the New York Times interviews coming up. And so we have a tight window and she's like, okay, I got to get us a conference room somewhere in South Beach. And there is no conference rooms in South Beach, turns out. Lo and behold, there's surprise. There's (laughs) no conference rooms in South Beach. And so What ends up happening is I'm like, all right, it's fine. Just get like a suite. You know, like I don't want to record in Sean's bedroom next to his bed. Just get us a suite somewhere and like have a living room and we'll just record there. Okay, that's a good plan. No problem. Sounds good. And so that happens for an hour. We do that dance. And she calls me very frustrated. Jubin, I don't know what's going on. Art Basel, whatever. We can't get anything. So I said, give me a second. Let me order an espresso. Let me think about it. So I ordered a coffee and... I call her back and she goes kind of jokingly, definitely jokingly, you know, I just feel like it'd be easier if we got like a boat. And I go, Kelsey, I was just thinking, let's just get a boat. So here we are in the middle of some beautiful Miami canal and we're recording a podcast on a freaking boat. And of course, that's the most Miami thing we could possibly do. It's easier to get a boat in Miami than it is a conference room at a hotel. Absolutely. On-demand boats are the new on-demand conference rooms, I guess. (laughs) So in that vein, why don't we kick things off? Your career background is one of the shortest that I've ever had to go through. You started in 2011. So you were 11 years old, 2011. I was 15. 15, 15 years old. Yep. And you were the founder of Premier Auto Management. Then you went to Georgia Tech. Yep. Got a major in operations and supply chain management. Then you became a Teal Fellow, which basically encourages you to drop out of school. Gave you 100K. Yep. So did not get a major in. Was on track to. And then uh, the Teal Fellowship interfered. 100K to drop out of school. Then you joined a company that I'm not going to be able to pronounce. What is it? One step back. Worked at Hyoko while I was a student at Georgia Tech. And that's where you dropped out. Yeah. That's really where I saw a lot of the perspectives that led me to start Stored and what it looked like at an enterprise supply chain after running Premier Auto Management, which was a company where I was importing and selling over an e-commerce website, Performance Automotive Parts, went and joined Hueco, spent about a year or two there in and out of class at Georgia Tech, and then ultimately started stored and and, and dropped out. Started stored in 2015? October 2015, just hit six years since the day one. Congrats. So we were talking with your girlfriend last time I saw you, in New York. What is the thing that you like? There's like some cheese dish or oh, something. Come on. I, I'm queso. sorry. I, queso. I'm sorry. To dis- anyone from the Southeast or the <laughs> South in general knows that, well, anyone on my team knows that I'm an avid Mexican food fan. And anyone in Georgia or the Southeast knows that 
queso is the staple side dish of any great Mexican restaurant. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint, but there's no queso on board. Okay, so a couple of questions and then we'll dive right into it. Can you talk about what the hell Premier Auto Management was? First of all, who starts a business at 15 years old? But anyway, go ahead. So long background, it was actually far from my second business, but my second one that I actually started an LLC around, went all in around. So my original, any genesis of business in 2003, I opened an eBay account when I was seven after Christmas. Seven? Seven. I was very, very lucky. I spent a year and a half homeschooling online. So I had unique access to a computer and the internet from a young age. And so very lucky in that sense sold my Christmas presents on eBay. I sold an Air Hogs and a Game Boy Advance SP, I want to say it was, that I got for Christmas on eBay because I wanted to go buy a cell phone. And then I asked my mom, hey, can you connect your bank account to this thing called PayPal I just found online? And can you drive me to UPS to ship this inventory? She almost killed me. Seven. Yes, that turned into a business where as scrappy as it sounds, very true, I was buying broken electronics off of Craigslist breaking them down for the working parts and selling them on, on eBay and became a power seller selling electronics parts. I can actually, I'm going I'm to live in the background, show you my, my same eBay account member since 2003 at the top. You're proud of that. I am. It's like my biggest proof. <laughs> Is that legal? Definitely not. I definitely <laughs> okay, agreed okay. to so many terms that I was 18 or older, <laughs> right, right, all, right. all okay. these things. Anyway, all right. But anyway, so it was kind of born out of a need. I really wanted a cell phone. I thought, hey, if I can build my own business to yep. pay for this as a middle schooler coming up on it at that point, that's my best way to get it. And so then I was going into high school and I had done this e-commerce business. I had sold inventory online. I had bought and sold parts and I really wanted a car. And I said, I'm a, I'm a huge car guy. I've always loved mechanical parts. I've always loved working on auto parts and more. What if I started buying either broken or importing auto parts and, and reselling them first on eBay, then on my own e-commerce website? And that became Premier Auto Management, which I ran from probably my freshman year of high school through my senior year. There's one company I was buying parts from, Kiwoco, and I just kept emailing them and emailing their CEO saying, I'd love to meet you. I'd love to work for you. I got a chance to meet him one time. And I think he he laughed basically, why are you a customer of us? Because I was 16 or 17 at, at the time. And they did, a, when I ended up working there, about 1.2 billion a year of revenue. So lar- large company. And he took a chance on me and, and I ended up working there. That is a hilarious story. One that I've heard, but one that always puts a smile on my face. The funny part was I was graduating from high school and I thought I was just going to enjoy my summer before Georgia Tech. And I got 13 plane tickets sent to me from this company to France, Mexico, Germany, all their different factories. And I called him and I was like, what is all of this? And he was like, you're working for us this summer. I was like, it would have been nice if we confirmed this schedule before I started me. working. But I ended up working at Kyoko my summer before college and then took my second semester freshman year and my summer after my freshman year off. So to work there. So I effectively worked there for about a year in total. So one of the weird things that strikes me about your background is that when I recruit people into this company with you, No one's really passionate about supply chain. No one wakes up in the morning thinking about supply chain and how excited they are to solve that problem. I feel like you do. Is that fair? Do you love this? I think so. I mean, I had this crisis going in in my mind at that time where I've never really mentioned it much publicly, but I tried to start one or two apps and one or two different software-based only businesses in that time frame. And I always had this mental crisis of, I love the industrial space. I love walking through warehouses. I love seeing the physical inventory. I love yeah. finding the efficiency. And so doing that in a digital-only world, how can I do this where the digital meets the physical and then I can really put a hand on it and see this massive impact we're, we're having out there in the market? And I think it's funny. I had Josh and Ilya from your team to Atlanta recently. We opened a, a new fulfillment center. When you show somebody this massive fulfillment center, all these robotics moving around it, how much product is flowing through, your eyes light up no matter who you are. It's the same reason Amazon has tours of their FBA fulfillment centers. It's an amazing feat. It's always been something I'm passionate about. And the funny part is that job at Yuoko, as glamorous as it sounds, country to country, it was the most Doesn't sound glamorous, grueling <laughs> job ever. I was in manufacturing centers filming workers all day noting every single step they took and how many seconds it took and where could you batch those? Where could you cut those out? Where could you do something as small as put tape lines on the floor so they walk in a straighter line so that their efficiency throughout the day is more efficient at an aggregate. And so that incremental efficiency in the physical world where 
optimization and or technology can help that is something I, I feel like I'm very and passionate through about. that process, as you're sitting in warehouses, putting tape down for people to walk in the right direction, you're falling in love with shipping and logistics? Yeah. And so- <laughs> Are you being serious? Yeah. I, it was two phases. I was not falling in love with I want to be the lean management person who yeah. is optimizing every single step in every facility. I was falling in love with the total system and how it gets throughput the system at an aggregate. And so this company, Hueco, had 23 factories in 19 different countries. And it was also more, how do you use technology to optimize the physical world? So what they finally asked me to do, or I kind of proposed we should do this because I was in the supply chain classes at Georgia Tech simultaneously learning these, these models, inventory placement optimization, network analysis, lane shift analysis on your transportation lanes and learning it in school and then saying, hey, what if we tried this against our supply chain? And the one that became the most relevant was inventory optimization. A B2B brand like that company if you go work with Volkswagen, they want you to have safety stock inventory, meaning if your machine line goes down, you have enough product to keep stocking me for six to 12 weeks. And so when you have an expensive product and you're in a B2B automotive environment, we had hundreds of millions of dollars of inventory just sitting in warehouses across the globe for these end customers. I asked them, hey, what if we do an inventory optimization study to reduce our inventory levels, free up working capital, and then we can go be more acquisitive, we can go grow more, whatever it is. And I started digging in on it. And we had, to complement our 23 factories, we had 21 third-party logistics providers. You'll hear me call them 3PLs, third-party logistics companies. It's a company that does logistics on behalf of a brand who, whose inventory it is. We had 21 3PLs across the globe, warehouses holding our product. And all of them were different logistics companies from Kuninagel to Maersk to XPO to so on and so forth. But then all of them went and bought a warehouse management system, a software from a different company, and then we went and bought an ERP from, in that case, NetSuite, and none of these things were connected. And so the software running the building had no integration back into our enterprise systems. It was not connected to anything about our physical strategy of why we had so much inventory in these buildings. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like there was just this huge market chasm. It was, okay, on the, on the physical side, how can we really solve all this fragmentation we're seeing in logistics? And on the software side, how can we actually make it so that your software and your logistics are fundamentally sold together in one package so that when you go launch a new warehouse, you're not going to buy a different software for it and then spending six months integrating that software and more into your enterprise stack. When you provision that new warehouse, it's already part of your software environment. The physical and the software in your supply chain should be so inextricable that they're not different companies. And so those were the, really the two founding premises we, we set out to solve. But the background and the experience was interesting because I had seen, hey, I'm a very small seller. It's very hard to get scaled fulfillment and actually compete. And then I saw you assume the enterprise has it all figured out. No, it's really, really bad at scale too. How do we build a company that can give the efficiencies of an Amazon, for example, at an aggregate, because we're across hundreds and then thousands of brands and economies of scale and network effects of scale, how can we build a network that someone like Amazon can build for themselves for every other brand who can't go build it for themselves? They don't have the capital, they don't have the time, they don't have the, the volume to merit doing it. And so you decided to start Stored and you built a category that you've, is it the product or the category that we define as the cloud supply chain? It's a good question. So we would say we are the leading cloud supply chain platform. So we think it is the category and we call it cloud supply chain because it's really two things. It's cloud software, again, inextricable from your logistics. And so the second you, like AWS, provision more data storage, it's already part of your same entire environment in your same stack. Same thing with your physical storage was stored but it's also making your physical operate in a cloud-like way. Your traditional warehousing environment, 52% of contracts are three-year-plus volume-based commitments. 58% are five-year-plus volume-based commitments. And so when these brands need to be dynamic and react to how their consumer demand is changing, just think about the last 18 months with COVID, yep. how different their supply chain needs to be to react to all the changes in the market. It's really hard for today's brand to say, you know what, I'm going to need exactly 200,000 square feet of space and this many orders a day in the Southeast for the next five years versus saying, I need a network that can position my product where it needs to be instead. So you start the company, SUSE seeds it along with a few others. A few years into starting it. <laughs> a few years into starting it. Kleiner does the series A. Founders Fund does the Series B. Bond does the Series C. Yep. 
And then Kleiner, again, does the Series D because we were pretty excited about it. One of the things that I always hear people say to you is how young you are. Is that annoying? I guess recently I was just watching you on a panel where it was you and another gal, April? April. April. Uh, Spring Health. And she was the youngest woman to ever have a billion plus dollar company. And you're the youngest person to ever have a billion dollar company, which is, I guess, flattering. But does that get annoying? Where one of the first questions or objections that you face is age? It's interesting because I'm very privileged in life. You just had your 25th demographic birthday? And more, exactly. Just, just at my 25th birthday. I guess I was on the panel at 24. So 24. technically anyone else is aging at the same rate as me. So I should still be the youngest. And unless technically the company <laughs> hit a billion dollar valuation while you were 24. Correct. Yep. Correct. And so it's interesting because it's one of those scenarios where, in my opinion, you don't want it to be either constraining and you don't want it to be the reason. Meaning, I don't want you to think we're an impressive company because of my age. I want you to think we're an impressive company on a standalone basis, totally apart from that. But I also don't want it to be constraining, meaning I don't want you to judge our merits in a different way or believe we can't handle a certain amount of capital or other, whatever it may be, because we are young and we haven't faced those perspectives before. And so I think it's a very large competitive advantage in a lot of ways. You enter things as unencumbered, but it creates you as a founder have to be constantly willing to learn and acknowledge that I've never done any of this. Everything is new. Everything's the unknown unknowns. And you're trying to de-risk that and constantly sprint ahead of where the puck is moving so that you're always the right person for your seat. You always have the perspectives your team needs and more. But there's been a lot of funny things over time. I think it was one of our seed investors. I'll throw him under the bus a little bit. Sousa was joking on Twitter. Wait, you were 21 when we wrote the seed investment? I was like, no, I was 19. Um, I, I was not 21. And so it, I try not to lead with it. I try not to bring it up. I try not to let it kind of define myself or the company, but I'm also very open about it. I'm not going to hide it. Yeah. I think what's uniquely interesting about your age in this business is like, you're not starting a dating app. You're starting a supply chain and logistics company that is generally thought of as quite antiquated. You don't hear about NetSuite as much anymore. Never. You certainly don't hear about the warehousing and logistics types companies. Have there been times where as you're trying to do, maybe it's recruiting and fundraising is one thing. I think we in the Valley or us as investors or operators have a proclivity to find and believe in talent independent of age. But like in your industry, I, I suspect it's not that way. I don't know. Any good stories? Like any, any times like, are you serious, dude? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of that. I imagine it's much worse there than it is when you're fundraising or recruiting. Much worse. When you're trying to do a deal with, you know, or a, integration with NetSuite or like a deal with some big 3PL or warehousing or an integration. I don't know. The age. Yeah. So there was many times in the early days of Stored where the age worried me a lot. I tell a story and I think I told it on that same panel of I was about to be on the Forbes 30 under 30. They were going to put that I was 19 right after we had raised our seed round. And we had just signed an enterprise contract with one of the largest three cellular networks in the US. And I was freaking out. I was like, I don't know if I'm comfortable with this other contact knowing my age and is this going to hurt the, the relationship, hurt the business? We didn't have hundreds of logos and all these proof points. And so I actually, Forbes threw me under the bus on the stage. I reached out to them and asked, is there any way not to be on the list this year? They're like, no, you're already on it and we're publishing it. Nothing ever happened, but I've never had a detriment from it. I've had plenty of questions, comments, doubts, et cetera. Like I said, I think the merit, you, you try to push through it, but it never hurts with the technology side. It doesn't hurt that much with the recruiting side. I have literally had a candidate on the phone say, why would I want to work for someone half my age, et cetera. Yep. But I think it's oftentimes that, listen, we have an amazing executive team today and they have a lot of incredible backgrounds. A lot of them are twice my age uh, in many cases. And we have open dialogues on, we're trying to complement each other's expertises. You have a lot of expertise in your function. You have a lot of background in it, but I'm not bringing you here to do exactly what you did prior. I'm bringing you here to use those perspectives and learnings to innovate against what we need to do. And so there's clearly innovative and frameworks of stored that I can help you with. And there's experiences and depths of your respective function that you can help me with. And so I think it creates this good balancing act to where a lot of our leaders they want to learn the yeah. entrepreneurial side and they want to move faster and be hungry. And I think it's in inspiring to them in some ways, but we end up complementing each other very well versus just 
we're stepping on each other's toes or I have my own perspective because I've done this for 30 years versus I can offer you that innovative edge based on the context I have, what I've seen to date and more. The question that I have around the age thing, and then I can put a bow on this is, do you think your insecurity quelled as the business became more successful? Or were you always like, I feel this way. It doesn't matter. Whether we're a seed stage company that can't get funding or we're a series D company that, you know, the biggest rappers in the world are trying to get on our cap table. Has it made a difference or not really? I think early on it is looked at as a risk and an aversion. And that's a reason to be fearful and therefore you're more insecure about it. And I think the later you get, the more it's looked at as the edge. It's the impressive part to some of those investors, to some of those rappers, to some of the other people you're referencing. And so over time, it's become a a point of, I don't want to say pride, but a point of you got to embrace it and yeah. own it and say, yeah, this is me. And, and I think the more successful the company becomes, it becomes naturally easier to do that. But at the same time, it, there's a lot of founders, I wouldn't say I struggle with it, but there's a lot of founders, to be honest, that struggle with things like imposter syndrome, no matter what your age is. Yeah. It's the first time often you've ever done it. Otherwise, you wouldn't be building something from nothing and doing something for the first time. And so, whether it's age or background, there's nothing that just gives you every checkbox experience you need to be a founder and CEO of a hypergrowth startup. And so you got to remember that and acknowledge that. And so the best thing I've found to like ask myself or ask people with that is, or just remind people is, you may not have all the answers and you may think that's because of your experience or your background, but or, and you don't have it, you're young. But remember, you're doing something entirely new and innovative You'll find over time, there's no one executive or other that has a lot of experience that you will hire and they'll have the answer to everything. Yep. They're just going to do their best just like you are. They're just going to have new experiences to back those opinions mm. that maybe make them more successful faster or give them a better framework. But again, no one has all the answers. And so you're on a level playing field really in a net new startup. I remember I used to, we're talking different playing fields here. Like I'd say I'm in Wee and you're in the pros, but I used to be the young guy. I'm almost always the young guy in most of my career situations. And even today, less so now, but definitely before, I used to lie about my age when people would ask me. Well, A, it would piss me off when people would ask me. It would make me upset because it was a question of credibility. That was the context behind the question. I yep. could feel it. And that made me really upset because I was, why don't we just judge me on the output and what desired outcomes we want to achieve together rather than what age I am? So that really made me upset. And then the second part was I was so insecure about it that I would lie because I wanted age to be a proxy for experience and thus doing a good job. And over time, I'm like, you're not helping anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, you're not by, helping by anybody. hiding it. And so I, I felt the same way. I mean, I tried not to directly ever say I'm this age because it'll come out over time. But I would often be like, I'm in my 20s or I'm probably the same age as you or things like that where I could generalize it instead of say, hey, I'm 18, I'm 21, I'm 20. But I think you're spot on. The reason you don't like being asked is it's a question of your credibility and similar to, thank you for not asking. And I've gotten asked a lot, oh, are your parents in logistics or things like that? And I'm like, because of the question, how do you come up with this as a younger person versus I want an app to get my alcohol faster or go on more dates, which is a lot of companies. And so I think any of those questions, you got to feel self-confident in the reasons you're there, the reasons you have the seat at the table and more. And to your earlier point, a lot of that confidence comes the more successful the company gets, it's easier. But if I could talk to any new founder feeling that way, I'd encourage them to feel it more even early on because we were talking about it earlier. I'm down here for this conference with some very late stage CEOs in a, in a portfolio we're in. And it's amazing to hear a hundred billion dollar company, I won't name it, yeah. is facing some of the same thoughts that the CEO as we're facing. And yeah. you think it's all you. And yeah. you're like, no, I'm facing it. The hundred billion dollar company is facing it. The company that's starting today feels the same way. And they all think it's just you. Well, it's the Marcus Aurelius meditations thing. He's the most powerful man in the world at the time king of the Roman empire or whatever. And he has literally every thought that I have every day. He's worried about his love life, his girlfriend. He's worried about the way that his team would receive him. He's worried about the way that his people think about him. He's the most powerful person in the world. You know, he has every insecurity that I have. Yeah, so, exactly. Anyway, can I read you a quote? You gave a TED talk at some point for your alma mater? For what school? It was for Emory. Nearby my, my like alma mater. Literally zero Georgia Tech has not invited me to the TED Talk. If, <laughs> Georgia, they, if they do, Georgia I'll, Tech, I'll, I'll do are it. Are you listening? <laughs> I'm going to read you a quote. You put it on the back 
as the backdrop, the beginning of your presentation, I think it dovetails nicely into our conversation. I just want to get your reaction to it. It's a Steve Jobs quote. One of my favorites. It says, when you grow up, you tend to get told that the world is the way it is and to just live your life inside this world. Try not to bash into the walls too much. Try to have a nice family life, have fun, save a little money. That's a very limited life. Life can be much broader once you discover one simple fact. Everything around you that you call life was made up by people that were no smarter than you. You can change it and you can influence it. Once you learn that, you'll never be the same. What's your reaction to that? I was never the same. I truly mean it. I feel like there are certain perspectives or frameworks in life that if you really try to think about them, they can unlock such a difference in the future for you. And that was such a big one for me because I remember the first time I heard that quote. And it's kind of like what we were just saying about Marcus Aurelius. Everything in this world is another person. Everything we see, everything we touch, every societal expectation, every software, every system, whatever it is. Mm. And all of those people don't have all the answers. They think the same things you do. And so if someone else thought that was good, you can change it. You can mold it. You can make it better. I think it, I was very young when I heard that quote. And I feel like the one that came to mind, and this is going to sound crazy, is like a door, or the wheel, anything basic. At one point, that did not exist. The most basic things in the world around us, somebody had to invent. And that was technology at the time. And so once you realize that and you realize that, hey, really anything around us can be molded. There's no right or wrong. There's a better or worse oftentimes and, mm -hmm. and better or worse for the end user. I felt to me, it really unlocked this increased entrepreneurial just capacity of, I can really go mold anything. And that's not to say everything needs invention and just do it for no purpose, but don't put these limitations on yourself that... I need someone to give me permission to do this. I need a certain industry that is just so painful. Everywhere you look, there's opportunity. And similar to that, there was another one that was told to me once by my, my boss at Hyoko, that the CEO of that company that I really wanted to work for when I went and worked. And he said, if you look at every product around you, the seats we're sitting on right now, it's very likely that three to four different companies made money being involved in the value chain for this seat the leather production, the stitching, the supply chain to get it here, the manufacturing, it might've gone through multiple different countries. There's so much opportunity out there in the value chain that everything around you is shaped by other people. You can go invent and you can innovate and you can insert yourself in that value chain. And so those two things for me were always so interesting and un unlocking to that mental framework. I love that. You've been dating your girlfriend for 10 years? Six years. Six Mary years. Uh, Six we, years. Right. Uh, two months before starting the company or so. So she's seen it all. And you're based in Atlanta. You grew up in Atlanta. Your family's from Atlanta. The company is in Atlanta. You went to Georgia Tech through and through. All the systems and the environment around you is unchanging. The one thing that is changing is this crazy company. What do they think? Like, are they like, dude, how nice is it actually to have the same sets of people before and after to be like, hey, buddy, remember, like, you still got to like make the bed. Yeah, <laughs> that's a fun part. I think my family brings me down to earth, Mary Ellen, all of them in so many different ways. I've been really lucky that I have a lot of motivated reasoning for why Atlanta is perfect for our company. Yeah. Um, it's, it's great for enterprise customers. It's great for logistics talent. It's great for engineering talent with Georgia Tech. It's great for Delta. It's great for flights and getting on Delta. You got half of the airport dedicated to one airline. It's really good for a lot of reasons, but I've always loved it there. And I've been lucky to live a few other places like working at Huoco, the year and a half I homeschooled growing up. We actually lived in, in Europe for a year and a half. So I got to see some very cool, interesting places and cultures very early on. I'm very lucky, but I think being in the same market has been really fun for me because two things, I've seen the market proliferate. Atlanta is very different than when I was growing up. And even over the last five, six years, very different than when I was starting stored to the venture and other tech environment I see today. It is one of the most thrilling things that I just don't even still believe it. I get, I get Georgia Tech students all the time emailing me. I want to be like you. And, and yeah. so many of us want to start companies. It's now a recruiting superpower for you. Being exactly. a hometown boy. It's, it's nice to be in a smaller or mid-sized pond. It's like recruiting when you're in college. If you go to high school in the state of Florida, University of Miami and FSU certainly have a leg up similar to Alabama if you grew up in somewhere, you know, Athens or whatever. And so it's helpful in a lot of those senses. And I think the, the second point you're making is it goes back to all that kind of 
unencumbered thinking or the everyone around you is feeling the same things. It, when you start to get into these tech circles, we're both in. We were talking about some founders of some insane companies we've been spending time with down here in Miami. You always feel like there's someone doing it bigger, better, more. To be in the same environment where you can just look back sometimes and say, wow, this is how much different it is than when we started. Here's all the impact we have. And compare yourself historically is helpful to really let you see that progress and let you feel what you've we've done overall. So that's not the reason we're in Atlanta, but to your point on, does the family and more help ground you and really like, wow, look how far we've come? Yes. And I think that's a helpful perspective versus just chasing after every other company, every other VC, et cetera, because you're just in the cycle of being in a certain market. This is going to be a weird question, but one of the things that I've been struggling a lot with is that if I asked three years ago, Jubin, where he'd be today, he'd be really proud of himself and he'd be really excited. And I would be incredulous. I wouldn't believe it. And if you asked the three-year version of Jubin previous to that, he would feel the same way. And that's kind of a continuing treadmill of feeling actually not just career related, but kind of like generally mental health and physical health and all these other things. But when I'm there, like I'm here now, and I just have a general sometimes feeling of discontent because I'm like, I have so much more work to do. And the co-founder of Brex just wrote an article about this. I'll put it in the show notes, but basically the feeling that I, I had a hard time articulating until I read this article is kind of living in your current state and then your desired future state. And there's kind of this delta in between. Yeah. And I think the overachiever in us is like, well, of course I raised it a billion. Of course the company's at this point. Of course we're delivering this kind of value. Wait till we do X, Y, Z. Do you experience that? And does that take away from your ability to appreciate the moment as it's happening? No, it's a phenomenal question. It's something I've spent a lot of time personally trying to think about too, because Jacob, my co-founder, CTO, and I have joked from the earliest days that you always say, like, I remember a few discrete examples. I talked about that telecom company contract. I remember us saying, when we get our first Fortune 500 customer, game over, everything's awesome. We sign them, you don't care. You just keep going. And now going you got to make them successful. Yeah, exactly. You say, the second we raise a, a million dollars, second we raise at a billion, whatever it is, it's all going to be great. And then you get there and you're like, the delta between where you want to be now. And that's all you're focused on. And so it, it's, everyone feels that this way. But then if you look back and I say, if I had told myself as a coming out of my freshman year, Georgia Tech starting stored in the next five years, it's gonna be a billion dollar company. You're gonna have hundreds of employees. You're gonna work with some of the best in, investors in the world like Kleiner and more. You'd be ecstatic and you yeah. wouldn't believe it. And so I think it takes this realization that you're gonna be doing this for a long time and you need to be not satisfied and content, but at mental clarity and peace with this is why I am here. And I need to focus on the moment also, not just get in my head about why I should be 10 feet farther ahead, for example, or a year farther ahead. And you just got to acknowledge that sometime and, and find your own way to remind yourself, hey, this is what you asked for. This is where you want to be. But there's two sides of that. There's both the growth side and you want to be farther and you got to remind yourself to be happy in the moment so that you can focus on executing in the moment, not just getting too far ahead of yourself. But there's also the opposite side of that, which is I see a lot of founders over time, listen, your life becomes very busy. Your day-to-day -day becomes very busy. You're constantly, this was one of the, the CEOs giving a talk at this conference the other day. You have to get constantly in a state of willing to be in confrontation. And not confrontation always negative, but even if you're pushing your team to do more and better and it's good, it's confrontation in a way. And that's discomforting to most people at our core versus mm. just agreement and acknowledgement and patting ourselves on the back. And so there's all these things that you get very drained and burned out with as a founder over time. And you got to remind yourself, hey, whether you knew it or not, when you were starting the company, this is exactly what you were asking for. And if you weren't doing this, this is exactly what you'd want to be doing. And so I think there's two sides of the coin. I think there's both the slowing you down, the, hey, I should be farther ahead, but I, I got to recognize I want to be in the moment. But I think you can also use the same framework for when you are feeling burned out or you are feeling anything else, which is this is exactly where you want to be. Embrace the moment you're in and kind of take it even farther. And I think a lot of founders need to find the kind of their versions of both side of that coin. What do I kind of reflect on and go back to yep. in the worst times and in the best times, how do I keep myself acknowledging and grounded that this is a good place to be? Well, and some of your, I think failures is a tough word on it, but trying to start consumer software SaaS companies 
And realizing like this is not the fulfillment that I want probably gives helpful perspective. The other thing I was with, I'm not going to say the name, but one of the founders of one of our other portfolio companies who's based here. And we went to dinner last night and I said, hey, do you miss the early days? Do you miss the days where it was you and five people in the apartment? And he said, very much so. And sometimes I wish that I could go back to those days because they're now a big growth company. And it's like the sexiest name, you know, it's everything you could want, young guy. And then he said, but now I remind myself, this is exactly the company that I want to be doing. Exactly. You always have this feeling of, hey, if I I wasn't dealing with hundreds of people and investors and financials and operations and all these things all day, and I was just in that room with five people, that's the spark. And that's the moment I want to be in. And then if you go back there, you're like, I want to be the billion dollar. This is hard. Yeah. (laughs) I want my first enterprise deal again. Exactly. And so the grass is always greener. And that's where I was kind of giving that both sides of the coin. It's what you wanted, whether you knew it or not, when you signed up for it, starting as those five people, this is what you wanted. And so when you want to go back there, you got to realize the only reason you want to go back there is to get to where you are again. Exactly. Exactly. So there was an article that came out some point this year, not too long ago, that stored is the third fastest growing company in Atlanta or something. Second, second fastest growing company in Atlanta. And I'm putting you on the hot seat here, but there's 47 job openings. This is the one thing that I, I didn't care about how fast you're growing in Atlanta. What I was struck by on my side of the table, metaphorically speaking, is that all these companies had, and help me understand this, zero headcount open, five headcount open. One, if you're in the top five fastest growing companies in Atlanta, how could you have zero headcount open? So that's question number one. Number two, we have 47 job openings. What's up with that? Are you in the hiring? We are hiring. That's why the headcount are open. But no, um, it's funny because Atlanta is also interesting where you'll run into those lists and they'll conflate kind of non-tech companies, tech companies. Right. And so I think the company that got number one is like a marketing or real estate agency or something like right. that, that maybe doesn't have a headcount open right now. But no, I think especially in a business like stored where it is digital meets physical, people are inputs in a lot of ways. Every time we grow, we need more fulfillment center workers. We need more people to implement customers. And we got to do all the, when we're talking about the stage you're at, it becomes a math equation as well of for sales, for marketing, for product development. If we want to hit X, Y, and Z goals next year, what do we have to hire right now to do so? And so hiring a lot at any given time. And there's a few companies out there that have hundreds or thousands of roles. So 47 is not too bad. The other thing that I thought about was, and we were talking about this earlier, I just had to ask you, you're going to have interesting perspective now as you go through this company and maybe one or two more later on the fundraising environment. We have a inside baseball look of what's happening with Stored, but you'll raise around and within weeks, there is very legitimate investors that are trying to raise the next round double, triple the valuation. And I'm just making up numbers, but it's probably not too far off. How crazy is it right now raising money as a hot tech company? Yeah, we've seen a few cycles, not huge market cycles, but the micro ups and downs. And so it's funny. I mean, I remember, I don't even want to try to quantify how hard it was to raise our angel or capital or even seed capital again when I was 18 and I had no background. And how hard was it? I didn't know a single venture capitalist. Quantify it. (laughs) It was harder than any sale. And it was all because it was proof points. Why you? What are you going to do with this capital? Why should we trust you? They're all asking, are you the one that's going to build this into a billion dollar plus business? Or is that someone else who has X, Y, Z, 30 years of experience at this company? And so... It was very hard. We took hundreds of meetings until we finally just said, you know what? We just got to build. And we got to over $100,000 of annualized revenue by the time we raised any dollar for the business, just because we felt like we had to prove at least something versus nowadays, I talk to companies that are just thinking about their idea. They're at Uber or some big tech company, and they're getting a $25, $50 million seed valuation to go start a business. I'm like, we got a million dollar valuation or less, $500,000 valuation for our first check into the business, million quarter for a second check into the business, 10 million for our third check, 45, 200, 500 billion and 0.1. So there's a lot of progression over time. But to what you're saying, so any round we've done, we felt like there was material progress in the business. So like our B- Which is why you do it. Exactly. Our B, our C, our D, we all had over 100% growth between those. They were all a few quarters apart. And so we were comfortable with those. 
And there's a lot of forward indicators as well that, okay, internally, we feel good. I often go back to Jeff Bezos talks about this a lot in the early 2000s for Amazon when the, the market was crashing is as long as you're watching your inputs and what those are doing to your outputs and internally your numbers are going up into the right over time, the market's going to do things. It's a voting machine. This is when Amazon went through its trough of despair. Exactly. Yep. The market is a voting machine in the near term and a weighing machine over time, weighing, is this a durable, big, impactful business? Yep. And in the near term, voting, what do we as investors think is happening right now in the broader markets and this company? And so what I would quickly say is just, you're spot on. We've been very lucky that our last kind of two or three rounds were very inbound. We were going to go raise. An investor approached us earlier. We kind of sat down together and said, why now? And then we thought it's a good time. We can come to the right valuation and amount of capital. For example, you guys led our last round. We were getting a lot of external demand. And we sat down with the board and with Ilya and said, there's a lot here. And why don't we do it internally? We, yeah. our, our existing investors are pretty happy. And so in the future, I think it'll take the same approach where it's just hard right now and it's hard to answer the question, just to be honest. If an investor asks you, are you contemplating around two weeks after you did your last one, you kind of say, yeah, what are you talking about? What are you, what are you talking about? Like, I don't know how to, to devalue or determine this. The goal of the investment is for us to use the capital productively. We have plenty of capital to use productively as it stands today. Exactly. You can swing a little differently. You can think a little differently. You can accelerate faster sometimes, but at the end of the day, the number one thing you can do with capital is hire the best people in the world to your open ed count points. And so there's a lot of reasons why I'll just be extremely candid. Uh, stored will require future capital. We yep. think this is a tens of billions of dollar business for many reasons. And if we want to get there, it, it will. So when there's those approaches, they can be compelling. Oh boy. You thought you had a lot of inbound now. Just wait. Speaking of hiring great people, you just hired a couple of pretty amazing executives. I say recently, like within the last six to nine months, the SVP of product from Rent the Runway. You hired the chief people officer from Bumble. Things are looking good, over 300 employees now. I remember when you came in for the Series A at Kleiner, you gave the pitch. And in your pitch, correct me if I'm wrong, I might be rewriting history here, but you proposed buying a company, Cove, in your Series A. I've never seen that before. And I was like, is this guy for real? It's, <laughs> is that true? This is, this is true. It was kind of following the Series A. So we were pitching the core and then we we're like, but we also want to do this. <laughs> and, and it was interesting. We were, it, it goes back to like the unencumbered thinking and being aggressive. And I said, listen, I remember like getting ready for that meeting. And I was like, I wonder if Kleiner has ever, you guys are on Sand Hill Road. You're across from the Rosewood. You're like in the Silicon Valley venture spot of the history. <laughs> And I remember walking in and I was like, I wonder if they're used to talking about acquisitions versus yes, when you're selling the company, but right. buying a company. And so I had to give a lot of reasoning. Hey, this is going to accelerate us in these ways. We can do it on our own with the capital you guys invest, but this is why it's going to be more expensive to do it that way versus more creative to do it this way. And if we're thinking really big, this is going to be a potentially a key part of our long-term strategy. And I give a huge hats off to the Kleiner team for saying, listen, we can't tell you exactly how to run the business. We agree with the high-level strategy of getting into that segment of accelerating in these ways. If you think that's the right way to deploy the capital, we'll be supportive. And, and your team also being very helpful. A few of your team members, particularly a huge shout out to Josh, modeling and f helping me figure out how do we finalize this? How do we integrate this? How do we financially model what we're willing to pay and more? And so if we go back all to the age, 21, 22, no, I had not bought a business before, but the, the, there we did. And it's been massively successful as part of the, the overall company. And I love Josh and I love Ilya. And I think as much credit as we'd like to take for doing some of this stuff, sometimes we just know when to get the hell out of the way and just say like, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. Like you have way more context than we do. I remember the series B coming around and it was not this insane flood of inbound that you're now having at the C, the D, what will be the E. Is that right? I remember, pretty sure we had to bridge you. Like, I'm pretty sure we needed to flip over. There was not enough cards flipped over from when we did the first round to when you needed money to get to the next point in the business, the next inflection point. Is that right? Yeah, so... What I would say with the B was we were talking to a lot of investors for a long time. We had a lot of inbound, but I don't quite know if the market, to your points earlier, understood supply chains. Yeah. There's a New Yorker cover for December. It's a container ship. It's called the Year of Supply Chain is the cover of yeah. the New Yorker in December. And so I think it took 
the market shifts caused by COVID where every brand shifted their supply chain strategy. They shifted from offline to online. They became more and more omni-channel for every investor out there to say, wait, this e-commerce trend is not going away and for stored to multiply as a business overall. And so we were getting a ton of overall demand starting to grow. And, and we were very lucky that we had been talking to Founders Fund since I think I originally met Trey and the team over there the same week I met Ilya in late 2018. And then Ilya from your team led our Series A in early 2019. And then two years later, getting to know the Founders Fund team, they, they had ultimately led our B and we weren't raising yet. We were kind of about to go out to the market and raise. And I, we felt there was kind of growing enough demand starting to come. And then ultimately we said, hey, we think you're the right partner for us, Founders Fund, for X, Y, and Z reasons. And they said the same thing. And we partnered together back in late 2020. Yeah. And it's no surprise. You see your evolution as a leader. You see the product's evolution and what it's doing for customers. And then you see this insane tailwind that's happening, right? And one of the things that there's a woman, Nicole Perloff is her name, and she's a security researcher at the New York Times. And she came in to speak to us, me and a bunch of CIOs. And she wrote this crazy book about ransomware. And long story short, this is kind of a weird analogy, but she used the metaphor that all of the ransomware attacks that are happening right now at big companies, ransomware being like, someone gets hacked, pay us millions of dollars, otherwise we'll release your customer data. She said it's basically pen testing for large organizations today. And what she meant by that pen testing is like you hire a good guy or girl hacker to then go into your network and pen test the system to make sure that it's a good person that we've hired that's actually breaking in, not a bad person. Super weird analogy, but we've kind of had that pen testing moment with you that's starting to put supply chain in the general narrative of conversation where people can't get, you, know, you just moved into a new house, you can't get your freaking couch, can't get your bed. You see the image of the boat in the Suez Canal, like that blew up and it started to affect individuals in a really meaningful way. And they're now demanding their suppliers to do better and to have resiliency. I don't know. That's just something that I thought of. And I think that's a huge tailwind for you that also contributes to all the other things that are happening. It's a striking image, by the way, seeing a boat rammed into- Stuck in yes. a canal. Yeah, yes. no, it, it was crazy. And I think what it is, is you know how many people we've hired that say like, I don't tell people what I do at parties before stored when they're in logistics. They're like, I help move boxes and ship your inventory. They don't say I'm in supply chain and warehousing. People's eyes glaze over and they don't know what you're talking about. But this year, again, I think that's changed because- the thing about supply chains that always struck me is I dare someone to name a physical product that hasn't moved through a supply chain. Everything you can see around you that's not part of nature has been moved on a truck, through a warehouse, something. The most durable businesses of all time have been in and around logistics. Amazon is a logistics business at its core within e-commerce and cloud computing wrapper around that logistics overall infrastructure. Even their cloud computing is run out of warehouses globally to holding those data centers. And so it's just such a massive industry that I think it took an effect to you or not you specifically, but people's lives to be like, oh, wait, this is as big as we thought. The last thing I'd say too, is I think supply chains have always been historically so fragmented that everyone's question is purely a question of what do the economics look like? And so when you look in any industry and you look at the overall economics of the business, you also have to look at the size. And supply chain is one of those unique spaces where Paul Graham, Y Combinator, et cetera. They teach, find your billion dollar market and you can build a great company. Domestically, we are in a $200 billion physical market and a 24 plus billion dollar software market for supply chains. So 224 billion and over 1.3 trillion globally. There's a lot of opportunity to extract massive amounts of value and economics in that segment with scale over time. And so all those things confluencing together, how supply chains have made it into the fold of every narrative, how investors and kind of the overall market has really grown right now to be very, very aggressive in new categories they hadn't thought about prior. But ultimately, an investor's really willingness, I think the biggest change I've seen in the market, in my opinion, and, and this is just my opinion over the last year or two from years prior, is an investor is not asking incremental. What is this compared to the last round? they're asking terminal. They're saying, what is this relative to totally what this could be? And so that seems like it's changed a lot in recent years. Yeah. And you can see it manifest in other ways in the business too. Our inbound lead flow has gone absolutely bananas because large retailers are terrified that they can't get their product. Exactly. To people. 
If there's anything that I'm really proud about, it's it means a lot to me and it means a lot to our team when we have the largest retailer in the world or one of them call us and say, how do we do this better with you? And we know you're doing it better than us. And that's a fun- No RFP. Exciting. Like call stored. Exactly. Like yeah, we were talking about that one earlier. We've decided that you are going to help us. And you're not just going to help us with your product. Like you're going to help us as a partner. We want you to reinvent how we think about this, in this case, this company's case, billions of dollars of spend for us as a brand and be our partner. And we don't want to drag you through X, Y, and Z. We want you to tell us how to do it better. And so the customers have also come to that perspective and in in the market shifts of the last year have really helped that. And it went from the trends pre-pandemic stored telling you, Here's why with a more cloud-like logistics approach, you're going to be a more durable and successful brand because you can focus more on your product and service than building and scaling this massive infrastructure yourself and putting all this CapEx out there to build your logistics network. To the beginning of the pandemic, companies saying, I have a massive immediate capacity crunch pain point related to my port closing, my retail stores closing something. Help me with my pain point today to kind of six months into the pandemic, companies saying, no, this is my new strategy of the future. My supply chain needs to be built around connectivity, resilience, flexibility, and some visibility connected through all that. And the only way to do that is through more full stack cloud-like approach like a stored. What is in your mind the biggest risk to this thing becoming a $10 billion company? What do you worry the most about? 10 billion is a number that I pulled out of thin air, but I think your ambitions are not even revenue oriented, (laughs) but just what do you think? What it keeps you up at night? If you think about five years from now, what do you think this company could be? And like, what's the number one thing that you're like, shit, like we need to mitigate that risk. Absolutely. For me, it's always focus and execution in, in a supply chain. There's so many things you can touch. So like, for example, we don't do air, ocean, freight, customs, et cetera. There's great companies like Flexport who do that. There's so many things you can touch when I talk about a one point three trillion plus dollar global market for us that I think the the biggest thing we weigh internally is is focus. You often have to think about it as a company, our customers get this, we get this, we see how this is happening over time. But in a business like Stored, this is going to be massive infrastructure over time. If we want to build a tens of billions of dollar business, or I have one of our investors at the last board meeting say, this is the vision we need to create for this to be a $500 billion business. Obviously, that's an aggressive statement. My point being, you can build something really big here. It all comes down to execution, but then external market factors and risk mitigation too. We need to be as attentive to what does the investor want? What does the customer want? And more in each cycle over time to make sure we have the capital, the team members, all these things needed to execute. And so I think we weigh our internal inputs the most. What are the things we can control and how do those lead out to our outputs? We look at the market a lot and try to make sure that what we're doing internally aligns to different market cycles and thought processes. And then we just look at our customers and say, my biggest thing is customer obsession internally. You and I talked a lot about Amazon and Jeff Bezos offline. We, we follow a lot of the same principles. I want to care more about the lifetime value of the customer than anything. There's so many customers we start at small spend today and next year they could be millions or tens of millions of dollars with us. As much as I care about the customer, the specific spend, the economics, whatever it is, day one, I want the lifetime value of that customer. And we need to remain customer obsessed because if we prove the value of the cloud supply chain platform to that customer, we could win hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of spend over time if the enterprise is large enough. You wrote at 19, not to bring up your age again, but at 19, you wrote uh, a couple of Medium posts. I don't even know if you remember these. Barely, okay, barely. So, uh, I was trying to build the personal brand. Like I said, right, I had no experience. Right, that's right, that's right. So I Hold on to that passion. Is that, the, is that where we're going to go? There's actually two. The first is passion. I have that as a note. The second is actually the one that I want to explore with you, which is the first-time founder mindset. And one of the key themes that you're exploring in this post is learning how to learn. And six years later, I think you've done a good job learning. One of the things that and not to blow smoke up your ass while we're sitting across the table from each other, but that kind of blows us away as, a, as the Kleiner team is that you kind of have the maturity and thoughtfulness that resembles a seasoned multi-time CEO, despite your age. And that has evolved over time. And you're like a learning machine. And the hardest thing that we see, that I see in these hockey stick companies, for anybody of any age, is scaling at the pace and speed of the company. How are you going about learning? Let's take this medium post six years later and put it in a microphone and talk about reflections. Well, thank you for the smoke. I don't know if I deserve it, but you guys are too kind. 
people ask me a lot about college in school. Is it required? And I'm not the right person to answer that question. But what I tell people is, unless it's like a piece of a degree, it's the required for your industry, your skill set, your trade that's required, then what college is teaching you is to learn. Can you learn new things? And are you a curious mind? And can you go learn? And do you want to learn? And find the thing that you want to learn the most about. And so I think you you need to learn how to learn. And that's the whole point I was mentioning earlier of like, when I get one of these great executives for the team, the best thing I can offer them is, hey, in a hyper growth company, your perspectives that you need day to day, month to month, quarter to quarter are going to have to evolve a lot. The same thing you did last month is not the same thing I need you doing this month. I need you to constantly evolve just the same. Let me help you not kind of entrench in your formerly knowns, entrench in them. This is the way I've always done it. Let me help you look at new data and look forward constantly and say, can we do this better? And can I improve? And so I think kind of what I offer to a lot of our team members is a lot of that approach of how can I try to help you get on that same page of continuous learning and improvement and steps forward where when you've worked for somewhere for 20, 30 years, you can be very kind of accustomed to, no, this is the right way to do it. And so that's, I think, a skill set I've, I've tried to develop a lot over time, but I would all boil it down to, I think my parents a lot of, they kind of taught me early on the same reason I was reaching out to that CEO of that company to just ask questions and ask to learn and ask, how have you done this? That's why I worked for Hyoko. And then try to surround yourself with the best possible people. I'm not going to blow smoke up Kleiner either, but I asked myself, there were a few people around the table at our, at our Series A and I said, I will never regret learning from an amazing enterprise software investor that's seen the likes of Amazon, Spotify, et cetera, like a Kleiner Perkins. And so it, it made a lot of sense. So I constantly look for executives a few steps ahead of me, uh, founders, a few series, company, whatever it is ahead of me, investors that are going to be my next investors. That one step forward perspective and just try to ask so many questions and ask for feedback and, and ask for what am I doing wrong and, and what could I do better? Because if you learn from the past or someone who's not farther from you or just yourself, you're not going to develop fast enough. Good place to leave it. I got to get you back for your next meeting. Are you hiring? What are you hiring for? And if you're listening to this, why is this an awesome time to join the company? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. So to your point earlier, we're definitely definitely hiring. Yeah, no uh, shit, dude. A lot, a lot of roles out there. My talent acquisition team gets a lot of, a lot of credit, uh, but they, they don't love the, the headcount requests I put through. They're awesome and such a good partner in all of this. But no, so we're hiring a lot. I think right now we're hiring some good leadership roles. Everyone at Stored is, is a leader and anyone in any startup. So from literal executives to just leaders in the company. But why I'd say it's a great time to join Stored. A lot of people see a billion dollar company, which is kind of right where we are. And they say, am I going to grow enough? Is the growth tapped out here? But for us, it's very much the semblance of we have this incredible foundation of the network, this incredible foundation of the team. We've raised over $200 million of capital to where we have a really good base to deploy against our goals. And a lot of the flywheels that we're building in our business are taking off. And so when you look internally at all those inputs and you say, okay, my 10 to 20 to 30 to 50 plus X opportunity is still potentially here. And I have all this foundation. I don't have to go join a one to 10 million valued seed company to get that 10, 20, 50 X opportunity. I think the mind opens for a lot of the, the executives we've recruited and they say, wow, this is more market size unconstrained than a startup I've ever seen. And the data-driven methodology internally in the operational execution, I hope is to a level of excellence that they aspire to join as a team. And so we constantly look to just raise the bar and we tell all those executives also, you're going to raise the bar, but people around you are going to raise your bar and you're going to have to work harder and do more things than you have before, but hopefully you appreciate it as, as part of your career. And so I think it's a great time because we have the capital, the team, the hundreds of customers from massive enterprises I can share like Home Depot and Dollar General and Ecolab to mid-market, rapidly fast-growing brands like Blue Mercury and Thrasio and Native and these, these e-commerce companies. And so I think we have all this foundation, but the market size and the growth opportunity for it is still unencumbered to where it's a really exciting time. What's the best way to get a hold of you? Sean at store.com, S-E-A-N at S-T-O-R-D.com is pretty easy. LinkedIn is pretty easy. Reach out to maybe the Kleiner or Jubin T 
team here and there. It, it all depends. Yeah, you can reach out. Just trying to get those emails to your inbox, <laughs> not mine. <laughs> but no, Sean at store.com, LinkedIn, or you can also go to store.com and see our careers page, depending, last, depending on the role. Last question. I ask the same question every time. What does the word grit mean to you? The word grit means to me, I always think about two things. I love two titles of two books that speak to grit. The hard thing about hard things and be obsessed or be average. I think those go together extremely well because I think to be gritty and to constantly run through new walls and make it through any scenario versus just the best times, you have to, one, run at the hard problems and see them as opportunities not to face that problem again and create a solution versus shying away from it in fear. And I think too, you have to be obsessed or be average. You have to ask yourself, have I done everything I can this day or this week? Have I left it all on the court essentially every single time I try? Otherwise, we're going to be pretty average. When you complement those two together, I think you get a gritty employee or team or company who, who can make it through any, any challenge in a more thoughtful way and come out stronger on the other end. I'm not going to let you be late for this New York Times interview, Sean. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for having me, Jubin. It's been, been an awesome time and uh, thank you for the great venue. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Vox, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.